while it's true that we have been in a series centered around the life of Christ and how we can mature and grow up into believers that look like him, last week was a bit different. It was something that was not for us as believers to emulate. It was something solely for Christ Jesus, and that was that's his divinity, his duality. Uh, this week, I want to get back to our theme of how we can mature. Now, before you go to the Word and look ahead and cheat, does anyone know... With, that hasn't cheated, what two miracles are in all four of the Gospels? I'll give you one. The first one we're not talking about today is the resurrection. Some don't count that as a miracle. I would say that's pretty miraculous. The, the resurrection of Christ Jesus, and what is the other that is covered in all four Gospels? What miracle of Jesus was covered in all four of the Gospel accounts? The feeding of the 5,000. I've, I've talked about this before. My uncle, my uncle who's a pastor in uh, Pennsylvania, he has Kit Kats in his pulpit, and he throws them at people when they get an answer right. Maybe we should start doing that. <laughs> Reese cups. Maybe we can have an arrangement. <laughs> and he's got a long, skinny church. There's about 200 of them in, in pews, and I mean, it's like... 50 feet wide by, you know, 120, so you must really have to <laughs> toss that thing. <laughs> All right, we are in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the fact that this makes it into all four Gospels seems to be important or special, um, especially when you consider the fact something like the resurrection of Lazarus only is covered in the Gospel of John. How can raising someone from the dead, you know, if you were writing an account of what Jesus was doing, said, here, you've got free reign, just describe how awesome God is. You would think that raising someone from the dead would be up on your list of like, yeah, that was a pretty cool miracle, right? Only John covered it. So the feeding of the 5,000 is very significant, um, I, I believe. And what, so we want to look at what makes this miracle so special. John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. After these things what we just read about last week. In fact, it was quite a while after these things. Most chronologists believe that there was quite a few months, eight or nine months that have happened between uh, John chapter 5, where Jesus was explaining his divinity, and he had just healed the, the lame man before that in Jerusalem, and then he's explaining who he is. Eight or nine months later, most believe, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Jesus went up on the mountains, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing what, that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where, do we buy, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Notice that word grass. So the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, 
he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. When they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had been eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that next sentence is a segue into the next section, which we are going to touch on more next week. Not the walking of Jesus on the water, but the later verses. Verse 26. They said there's most likely uh, quite a few months that has happened between this. And uh, John chapter 6, here we are. He's flying by in the life of Jesus. Now we know it's, it's said elsewhere that all the works of, of Christ, of Jesus, could not be even written, contained in all the scrolls. In other words, there was so much that Jesus did. There's so many people that he touched. We could just write endlessly about this. But here we are. We're only uh, six chapters in, and John is already, again, these things are written to you that you may believe that Jesus is God's son, Christ, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So he's writing it in a way so that you would believe who he is. Here's a testimony of John. He just went through the testimony of Jesus himself. Here's these signs. If you would just believe these things, you would believe that Jesus really is God's son. Here he is a few chapters into his testimony, his letter, and he's already in the third year of Jesus. So this is important to kind of note as we go through the rest of the book of John He's going to really focus on the words of Christ up until the last days of really explaining who he is and why he is that he came. So you think sometimes that, uh, it's no wonder probably that you think I go slow because John here, he wrote a few paragraphs and he's already covered two years of Jesus' material. <coughs> but this is Jesus. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. Time has passed. He's finished up, he's finishing up his Galilean ministry. He's head back to the, the Sea of Galilee to the east and Here's just a little bit of uh, rapid-fire background to set the scene. The crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing and him healing the sick. That's verse 2. Now, a denarius is about a day's wage. And I want you to see that he says 200 of them is not sufficient for everyone to have a little. So we're not saying 200 denarii is, is going to feed everyone. He's saying 200 is not even enough. But in case you want to know what that's worth in the U.S. dollar in today's terms, you know, that's between twenty or $30,000. 200 days wages, the average salary. You don't want to divide it out. You can figure it out. So it's, it's a big chunk of change. We're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. Is not enough to feed everybody. Now, there were 5,000 men, and Matthew's gospel specifically says that that was not including the women and children. So we don't know how big the crowd was. 15,000, 20,000, I think, would be a good conservative guess. That's like a dollar a person to not even feed them a crumb. That's like, can you imagine going to Panera Bread? There was no Panera Bread that, back then, right? Can you imagine how expensive that bill would be? To get food for 15 or 20,000 people? I mean, we're talking a quarter million dollars here. This is a lot of money. So I don't think we need to be so hard on Philip. He's like, I don't know what to do here. You know, this is... Jesus is like... You know, you, you don't even have a pillow, and you're trying to feed all these people, right? Five barley loaves. Now, what's significant about barley is that barley was the grain of the poor. These were the fishermen around the, the area of Galilee. These were the poor, the impoverished. And barley was most often the grain that was used to feed the animals, um, but the poor had kind of accepted it as their, their bread because it was a lot easier to grow than wheat. Wheat was used for the wealthy, and um, Jerusalem, most of it was sent there, and the wealthy would eat on it. So 
This is not a poor, and this is not a very wealthy kid. You know, he's just got so much food. No, these are probably little loaves of bread, little unleavened flat pieces, not even the size of a pita bread, and they're very thick, dry grain. Uh, the, the fish that is described here, John's word is not even really fish at all. He uses a derivative of the word broiled. Uh, some, some people say that it would even be, could be used in the way to describe boiled fish, but it's really a root word of broiled. So he has two broileds, and more accurately, what this root is really describing, many believe, scholars believe, that John is describing a type of relish. He's got these two little, imagine like a sardine. They're not, you know, you see these like fish in a basket or these big fish sometimes. This is probably not what it was going on. These little type of sardines that would be dried out in some form, whether they were broiled or left out in the sun, and they would eat them as toppers with their bread. It was a type of fish relish. So you'd have a bite of whole fish, very salty. Um, Some people actually translate it as salt fish because it shows that it was not, you know, the type of fish fillet that we think of. So this was pickled fish, salt fish, dried out or broiled fish. They were probably small, and this is what the meal was. Five loaves, not a loaf. You know, we think of loaves of bread, right? I could just eat a loaf of bread. No, there's a little piece of bread, a few fish, and Andrew brings it to him. He's, he's you know, trying to help. He's got a little bit of faith, but not a lot of faith. Now, there's an echo back here to 2 Kings chapter 4. Perhaps you remember the account of Elijah. There was a widow. She was making the last meal for her son. And Elijah performs a miracle, right? And this, this oil continues to flow, and she does not, does not run out. And he multiplies this, this flour and the oil so that they don't starve. They gave to the man of God first, and God blessed her. Well, Elijah's predecessor, Eli, Elisha, does, does a little bit better. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was, he actually took 20 barley loaves. Again, we see this word barley. And he multiplied 20 barley loaves to feed 100 men. And they had, it specifically says, a little bit left over. In other words, everyone had their fill. So Jesus here, he comes along and he's, you know, often people thought he was the Elijah, the prophet who would come. We think about Moses, really ultimately it was God that was multiplying and providing food. There's a, a throwback to Moses in this picture. But Jesus is raising the bar quite a bit. He's going to feed 15, 20,000 people with just a few fish relish and some pieces of bread. It's pretty amazing. Now, if you want to read in Ezekiel 34, you can write this down. You can look at it later if you want, 11 through 14. You'll also see that Jesus was actually fulfilling prophecy here. In the other gospel accounts, it specifically says, and we read this in uh, a different context last week or a couple weeks ago, looking at the compassion of Christ. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd, he was moved to compassion because he saw them as being sheep without a shepherd. Let me just read these verses from Ezekiel 34. And this is not the topic of today's discussion, but Ezekiel 34 says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. How many times did Jesus talk about sheep? My sheep hear my voice, they know my name. I myself will search for my sheep. Jesus was stirred to compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I will seek them out. I will feed them in good pasture. You remember John says there's a lot of grass here? And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. Remember, Jesus withdrew up to a mountain with his disciples. There was plenty of grass there. 
And there they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture with the mountains of Israel. Oftentimes the, the prophets were writing something, a, a kind of a double entendre. They didn't fully understand everything they were writing. The Holy Spirit was giving them inspiration. And Jesus, reading and knowing the word, perfectly fulfills all of these things. Now, you know, we could fast forward to today. We could say, oh, well, it wouldn't really matter if he didn't fulfill the scripture. We wouldn't just call it prophecy. But I think it's so beautiful that God confirms that this is the Christ because the Messiah, because he's the only one that could do these things. And, it's, and to the Jew, it would speak volumes. To those that would read the word and see the word, they would start to see these metaphors and see these analogies that God wrote about hundreds or thousands of years prior and now to see pointing to his son, and yet they still rejected him. But between the symbolism and the prophecy and you know, it being covered in all four Gospels, it's really just an incredible passage to preach on. You can go a lot of different ways with it. Sure, we've all heard numerous teachings from the different angles, the miracle itself, right? This is an amazing miracle. Well, perhaps Jesus' frugality, he picked up 12 baskets left over. He didn't waste any. There's a whole sermon there. You've probably heard it. The generosity of God that he cared for the people that were hungry. The compassion of Christ. Perhaps the misguided crowd that was just going after miracles. And, and let's not forget about the generosity of the young lad. We've all heard this sermon many different ways. But in this series looking at the actions of Jesus and how we can apply them to ourselves. Pastor, are you saying that I should take some salt fish and bread down to the drill field and multiply it? Well, let me know if you do. <laughs> I want to come. No, that's not what I'm asking you to do unless the Father asks you to do that. For one, I don't think that any of us could really could, could handle the, the overnight fame that would come with that ability the working of miracles, especially on a college student where food is scarce in the wallet. <coughs> hey, did you hear about that guy giving out free food on the drill field? So how can we learn and apply from Jesus in this story? Well, first, I would like to focus on verses 5 and 6. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Have you ever considered why Jesus asked so many questions? Or do you know that Jesus asked a lot of questions? Is it significant? Is that really, it could just be his preferential style, right? You know his personality? But I want us to consider whether or not there's something going on underneath the surface. Consider what Jesus has asked so far in John. I'm just going to take John. There's 50 recorded questions of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so far in chapter 1, and when he's calling disciples, he says to them, what do you seek? In chapter 2, his mother comes to him and says, hey, son, they're out of wine. What would you have me to do? Chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? He says, I have spoken to you later. He's of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In the next chapter, he says, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Do you not say? In chapter 5, he says, do you wish to get well? And 
He also says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Then he says, if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe men? Jesus is constantly asking questions. Why so many questions, Jesus? Now, last week I was talking about my flaws behind the pulpit, and apparently some of you picked up on that, and you remember them. Hopefully they'll hold it over my head. I'm going to give you another one this morning. I have never been accused of being a good listener. She's shaking her head. <laughs> Typically, I, don't, I tune out conversations that don't pique my interest. It's not intentional. It's not. But, you know, if you're going on about something, I'm thinking about what's for dinner or how much I have to do later. It's just how I work. Ask my wife. She'll be more than happy to tell you about how well I converse with her. Because... It's often one-sided. She likes to talk. I don't really even like to talk or listen, quite frankly. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with your spouse or someone close to you while they were on their phone? Ask my wife how she feels about that. She loves it. She loves when I'm on my phone and she's trying to tell me something important. Now, have you ever noticed that a good listener often will ask questions? It's not only because it shows that they're listening, but it shows that they care. And here's the point. We need to remember that when we're evangelizing the lost, a timely question can make someone feel like you genuinely want to get to know them, to understand them, or you desire to help them. Let us learn from Christ. Teachers will often ask questions, and it's not because they need more information, right? Not because they want to do anything other than find out how much you know or to teach you and impart something to you. In fact, Jesus was often referred to as teacher. Not to mention when he was 12 years old. Do you remember Luke 2.46? They went and found him. He had been missing from the caravan. Where he was he? In the temple. What was he doing? Luke says, both listening and asking questions to them. And I don't imagine these were just learning questions. What do you think this means? I think Jesus was using questions to probe and stimulate his audience, even at a young age. And you see that from verse 46. Because they were bewildered by him in his depth of understanding and knowledge. And that is the beauty of a purposeful question. To generate a response or to encourage people to think more deeply about something. Now, Scripture indicates there's lots of different kinds of questions Jesus would ask. Uh, for one, he would ask rhetorical questions. What does it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what does a man give in exchange for his soul? There are, there are many, there may not be an expected answer to a rhetorical question, but that does not mean that it should not elicit a response from us. You know, we've, we've had those questions as a child. We've, we've probably used those questions on our children, right? Do I look like a vending machine? Right? Okay, don't answer that question, right? That's, that's a rhetorical. Your, your son is up to bat and he keeps striking out a lot. Are you trying to lose? I mean, that's not, I, don't, I would never ask my son that. But I know some people do. Some people speak bad things. 
We've all been asked rhetorical questions before, and they have a place. There are times when it may be fitting to ask a non-believer a question to cause them to self-examine or to think, be introspective. But there are also times, and we see this in Scripture with Jesus, that he would ask a question or teach something that did require a verbal response. Jesus, for instance, said, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? He was, he was probing. He was asking the Pharisees to explain, If you can't call me Lord, how is it that David understood this thing that you don't understand? And they backed off, and they could not... Try and, they didn't try and trap him and ask him any questions from that point on. He says, why do you call me good? He was looking for a response. And it's clear that those kinds of questions are meant to receive a verbal response. And so we see Jesus was constantly using this technique to probe and cause others to think. But here's the real kicker with these kinds of questions where there's an answer. No matter how they answered, Jesus would use their response to teach them. How many of you are familiar with the, the ministry Living Waters? Ray Comfort. Okay, some of you know that name. I've, I've talked about him before. I encourage you to check out their online content. He posts on YouTube quite frequently these interactions that he has. Ray is a very gifted and poised evangelist that is known for working the streets of L.A. He sees everything, and he seems unfazed by the most destitute of society. And it's wonderful he gets to have these interactions. And he does not solely post uh, you know, testimonies of people repenting. He shows a lot of angry people. He shows a lot of people that are softened. He shows people that are thinking. He just shows here his interactions and, and what it's like in, in a way to encourage others to do what he's doing. Now, and his MO in witnessing is quite simple, yet it's very effective, I believe. He starts by asking a couple of basic questions. How many of you have ever lied? Right? Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Well, right? Everyone's answering this. He's on the streets of L.A., have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever used God's name in vain? And the individual responds, and, and Ray turns their answer on them to show them that they are in need of a Savior. Well, then by your own profession, you are a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer of God. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> and you could do this too. We've got to mature past the point where we feel like we have to have a script when we encounter somebody. We just need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know how to do it, you say, well, what happens if I don't say the right thing? Well, just start with a question and allow the Holy Spirit to guide your response and your answer. Because I think so many people are, are hung up, they're so afraid to even begin. They don't even know what to do, so they just don't, right? I'll just say that. That person's gifted in evangelism. Louis's got a heart for it. He's good at it. Pastor Vince, he was good at it, right? We're just going to let them take care of it. What does Jesus say? Go, therefore, every single one of you. That's in parentheses there. You probably don't have it in your English Bible, but I promise you that's what he was meaning. By extension, all the disciples, every one of you that professes me, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them. Every single Christian, every single believer has the responsibility to evangelize. 
Some people are gifted. Some people, that's their calling and their profession, their full-time role and function. Mine is that of a pastor and teacher. That does not excuse me from evangelism. Just as it doesn't excuse anyone from prayer, we are all, oh, that person's just such an eloquent, gifted prayer warrior. That person has the gift of intercession. Okay, they might find it easier than you to sit hours upon end praying for other people. I fall asleep. I'm not gifted in that department. That does not mean I can't pray for other people. And so we sort of use these excuses in the church, and I, I really don't like it. Oh, that person's, you know, that person's so generous, and we're just going to let them give all their stuff away. <laughs> so I guess I don't have to tie then, right? You see, we're, it's a slippery slope, right? If we just allow people that are gifted to do certain things, then we can just kind of sit back. Oh, God, but I don't know how I'm gifted. How could I serve you? Well, how about we start with this? Pray for people, evangelize the world, start giving to God. Oh, and then ask the Holy Spirit, okay, God, now I'm starting to do these things, and I need your help with some of these things. And the Holy Spirit's going to give you what you need for them in that moment to do those things that he's asked you to already do. All right, we got a little sidetracked here. Ray Comfort. Uh, asking these questions is a powerful way to draw someone into the discussion. So just start there. It doesn't have to be profound. Ask someone how they are, who they know. We all have that ability. We all can do that. Now, Jesus, the God-man, he didn't need any inf more information from Philip. And that's clear in Scripture. He was, he was simply using this question to teach him and, and the others around him something about his nature and his power. And I think there's a valuable reminder for us as Christ ambassadors that there is real power in simply conversing with the lost. Your job is not to convert them. Your job is to present the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to draw and woo them. And as they wrestle with the scriptures, as they wrestle with the truth that you have presented, they will make the decision to come to Christ or not. You can't save anybody. But how will they be saved? How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. So, for some people, all it takes is a question. I'm amazed at watching these videos. It's really encouraging and challenging to me. Because you just, and clearly I don't know how many interactions Ray Comfort has where he doesn't show them. He could cherry pick them. But that's beside the point. Even if it's one out of a hundred that gives their life to the Lord. I watched the video the other day, and he was talking, he was using the things that are happening in Israel, Palestine, with Hamas, and he was asking people, do you know anything about Hamas, and using that as a starter, a segue into conversation. And he went through his little questions with this one girl who says, you know, so you're a liar, you're blaspheming God, and he says, do you, do you want to know Christ? And she says, yes. And I'm like, I was just not prepared for that, I was taken back. And he showed another example of a person who was just totally ready. So you admit that you're a blasphemer of God and this, this young boy, it was just in the recent video, I think it was posted on Friday. Um, and they both ended up accepting Christ and having a prayer with him right then and there. And, and I think sometimes we, we kind of go into this with the complication that no one's going to listen to what I have to say. Why, why am I even bothering? But there are a few, granted that's probably the minority, of people that are ready. 
and they just don't know. They think they know about Jesus, but they've never heard about the gospel-saving truth of why he came. And all it takes is a question. Can I pray for you? You'll be surprised how many people say yes. Have you ever heard of Jesus? Oh, you have. What do you know of him? Do you have a minute to talk? Do you have a home church? What do you believe about God? We have over 300 recorded questions from Jesus. Not because he needed information, but to engage and to teach. And church, I reckon we can learn something from that. Talking about making genuine, sincere interactions with others so that they will think about the words that we exchange with them. Now, most Americans don't want to really be preached at. Now, there's some that do respond to hellfire and brimstone, but for the majority of people, there are better ways to engage with them. A well-timed and sensitive question can make someone wrestle with their faith. Philip, where are we going to buy all this bread? Perhaps Philip was thinking, why should we even buy bread for them? Does he want me to take some of the disciples to town? I don't have enough money. Should I pass the plate and take up an offering? I don't want Jesus to rebuke me for a lack of faith. What should I say? It was a test. And it didn't matter what Philip said, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Verse 6. What? Is that legal? Can God do that? Well, not only can God do that, God did that. Jesus asked a loaded question. We're looking at the life of Jesus so that we could learn from him, that we could apply his way of living to ourselves. Now, Philip did not pass the test, and I'm confident that I wouldn't have either. I get nervous that there's going to be enough food for a potluck when we've told people to bring food, right? It happens every time. How many times will you run out of food? I don't think ever. But I always get nervous. It gives me anxiety. I really don't like having potluck, bring your own dinners. I would much rather do a cookout in the church, provide meat or something. But even then, I'm like, we've got to have a backup plan to go buy more in case people show up. Brittany has this crazy strategy and idea where she needs to invite the whole world to everything. And I'm like, you can't just invite a thousand people. What if a thousand people actually show up? She's like, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> I don't lose, I lose sleep the night before these events. I promise you, if you know my personality and how much I care about food, I would not have passed the test. I really would not have. See, Philip was looking at what was seen rather than looking to the power of God demonstrated through the person of Jesus. There are multiple sides to this application, the first being inward. How can we move into reliance on the Spirit and increase our faith so that we see not the circumstances, but we see the situation through God's eyes? When God wants to move, He will provide a way to do it. And the second is an outward application. How can we strategically ask questions that might reveal God's power in God's heart to those with little or no faith. I hope it's obvious that there's not a mold that fits every sort of scenario perfectly. You know, we've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. In English, we have this idiom, what you don't know can't hurt you. Well, not only is that 
untrue, there, you know, there are unknown things that can hurt you. In fact, the unknown things can lead you to death. But set that aside and notice that the opposite is perhaps more true. What we don't know can't help us. In the same way that Philip learned his weaknesses that day, perhaps the world would benefit from a little self-introspection. Have you thought about what will happen before you die? These kinds of questions, right? To poke and prod and make someone think about their future. You say you don't believe in God. Have you considered that everything came from nothing? How is that possible? These sorts of timely questions can bring about opportunities to share the gospel of Christ Jesus. I encourage you to try them from time to time. Now, I want to move into the next section. I'm going to come back next week, the rest of the feeding of the 5,000 from a different light. Let's just read verses 15 through 21. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, see, they recognized who he was prophet, perhaps because of the fulfilled scripture from Ezekiel. They want to come make him a king. Withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come. And the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Once again, we see the intentionality and the submission of the Father, of Jesus to the Father. Not many men would be able to resist a tempting offer like being made king. But this wasn't even the first time that this offer has come to Jesus, was it? Satan took Jesus right up to the mountain and he said, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you would just do what? Bow down and worship me. But Jesus not an inch out of step with the Father. He knows that his reign as king on earth has not yet come, and so he slips away, no doubt, to pray. And he tells the disciples here to get in the boat and go on ahead of him. And we're not sure how long they waited there. Perhaps they were waiting for Jesus to come. I don't really know. It says it had become dark and Jesus had not come. They decided to go. I wonder if they would have bypassed the storm if they had just gotten into the boat and gone. We don't know how long they'd been waiting there. But nonetheless, a storm comes, they decide, well, Jesus isn't coming. Perhaps they were just used to Jesus kind of doing his own thing. You know, it's, it's an interesting thought. They weren't worried about him getting to the other side of the sea by himself at night. So how did Jesus do it? Well, he decided just to walk on top of the water instead of around it. Intending, we hear this in the other Gospels, to pass by him. He didn't plan on getting in the boat. But seeing them struggling, they had been out there so long, he decides to stop by and join them. And Jesus strolls up to them. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Why did you make us leave if you knew there was going to be a storm? Right? Now, a couple of miracles happen in these few verses, and there are, in fact, a couple of gifts of the Spirit in operation here. The first miracle, of course, is the obvious, walking on water. I don't know if any of you have ever done that or tried it, but that's not something that we have the ability to do on our own. 
right? That is, in fact, a miracle. It is, it is God working supernaturally against the laws of physics. Jesus did it. Peter followed after him, and he attempted it. He started out good. He had partial success, right? He operated in the gift of faith, but then fear came over him. He took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves and the circumstances around him, and you know, he started to sink. Now, the second, don't miss this miracle, is it's equally as bizarre, is that immediately the boat was at the land which they were going to. Only John records this. And it's very clear that the meaning is as obvious as it reads. As soon as Jesus gets in the boat, they were translated to the shore. Now imagine that happening and not thinking that that's significant enough to record in your version of the accounts. Only John recorded it. So what's going on here? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about a gift of the Spirit, which he calls the Enagema Dunamis. It's the effecting of miracles. A fair definition of this is, and I've used this before in the past when I've taught on these gifts, it's a supernatural power to intervene in the ordinary course of nature by God's direct intervention to counteract the natural laws. Now remember, since Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, John chapter 1, he was, he, we've already seen him operate under a word of knowledge, we've seen him operate under a discerning of spirits, We've seen him operate in the gifts of healings, and now we see the effecting of miracles, this gift. Connect the dots. Let's build our faith. Jesus, our example. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, operated under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit to show us how we can live. I'm not saying you can go down to the lake and do some cool tricks and just walk across, because that'd be really cool. I'm saying Jesus submitted to the Father, God having a plan for him allowed him to do something which is unnatural to nature. And that is what the gifts of effecting of miracles is about. I'd love to see that miracle in operation in this church. That gift. Again, I have my speculations and doubts that there's anybody who could really handle the fame and the honor, the popularity that would go along with that gift, at least in today's world. You know, someone sees something really cool happen in church, and guess what? Pull out your phone. Oh, I'm putting this on the gram, right on TikTok, for millions of people to see or mock or whatever. And then, you know, you kind of turn the phone around and put yourself in it, so you're popular <laughs> too, right? Am I, if I do it, is that about right? <laughs> hey, look what we're doing at church today, guys! Let us not forget that we are here to worship God, not ourselves. Jesus, our example, operates under the influence and power of the Spirit to show us how to live. Now, William Barclay, how many of you have heard of him? He's a Bible commentator. In discussing the feeding of the 5,000, guess what? He tells us that in those days, people wore robes. And that in these robes, they would often carry little food bits in their pockets of bread or cheese or whatever they had. In their, and in their sleeves. They would roll them up and there would be a little snack. Sounds like a good idea, honestly. <laughs> Give me some long sleeves. You roll it up into a t-shirt. Got my lunch. Pastor's getting a little long. Everyone starts <laughs> unbuttoning their shirts. 
And he says that there was no miracle except that the people's hearts were touched by the generous example of the little boy. Isn't that sweet? That's what a commentator, Bible commentator says. Page 103 of his book, if you want to read it. And he further explains to us that when the disciples were in the ship, the wind had actually blown them towards the the shore. And when Jesus wasn't actually walking on the water, he was, it looked like he was walking on the water, but he was actually on the shore. And they were much closer than they realized. Isn't it nice when we help God's word out by making it more manageable? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me tell you, God created the heavens and the earth, and we don't need to complicate that. He's alive and he's real, and so is the supernatural realm. Angels, demons, the whole lot. And we shouldn't be surprised by what God can do in us and through us. Listen, it's not our power. We think in light of science and nature. Science tries to explain the word of God. Oh, there was just little crumbs. People have tried to explain the parting of the Red Sea. They take some sands over and they say, if the wind is just right, the water starts to separate a little bit. It was really only a couple inches deep there, though, right? There's, there's people that have gone through and they've explained all the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. People have tried to explain away Noah's Ark. Oh, it was just a localized flood. Creation. All of these things. We try to help God out and, and diminish his power because of what we understand and know with science rather than just holding on to the word of God and recognizing that God is outside and not bound by state science and the nature of our laws. So it shouldn't be strange to us that God, who can speak everything into existence from nothing, can also multiply food and walk on water. But as believers that are filled with that same spirit that filled Christ Jesus, I want you to know that there are times where he can extend that supernatural power to us. Not as you will, but as he sees fit. It's clear in scripture. The Holy Spirit imparts those, distributes them as he sees fit. You know, many people are trying to profit from seminars and books and ideas on how to grow the church. You can read lots about them. I mean, I'm just plagued by it on almost every online resource that I have today. Grow your church. How to grow your church. You can probably go to churchgrowth.com. I guarantee you there's a churchgrowth.com. And it's not wrong, necessarily, but you know what I think? Someone who's yielded to the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yielded to the Holy Spirit, that is so sensitive to him and allows the Holy Spirit to work in and through them, when that person would be brought into a life that is pleasing to God and a few miracles are worked through them, that church is probably going to grow. We live in a day and age when, for good or for bad, people flock to the supernatural, perhaps out of skepticism, perhaps out of being hunger, hungry for revival. And there's a piece of that which is great, right? You see the revival that's happening in a college campus. Almost immediately, people from all over the nation were driving to go be a part of it and just experience it for a night or a few hours. People are hungry. There are people in the church that are hungry. 
and, and I'm not into pulling people out away from other churches, go and, and get filled with the Holy Spirit and take that fire back to your church. That's what I believe ought to happen. But the reality is, if there was something that was done in this little church, the word would get out. It's not about some great program or some cool website, even a certain name. It's about if we would just allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do through us. I want to leave you with one more verse. Don't get mad at me. I'm just going to read the Bible for a second here. Is that okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 31. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracle, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Earnestly desire the greater gifts.